Chapter 20 of The Uncommercial Traveler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Safray. The Uncommercial Traveler by Charles Dickens. Chapter 20. It came into my mind that I would recall in these notes a few of the many hostelries I have rested at in the course of my journey, and, indeed, I had taken up my pen for the purpose when I was baffled by an accidental circumstance. It was the having to leave off to wish the owner of a certain bright face that looked in at my door many happy returns of the day. Thereupon a new thought came into my mind, driving its predecessor out, and I began to recall, instead of inns, the birthdays that I have put up at on my way to this present sheet of paper. I can very well remember being taken out to visit some peach-faced creature in a blue sash and shoes to correspond, whose life I supposed to consist entirely of birthdays, upon seed-cake, sweet wine, and shining presents, the glorified young person seemed to me to be exclusively weird. At so early a stage of my travels did I assist at the anniversary of her nativity, and become enamored of her, that I had not yet acquired the recondite knowledge that a birthday is the common property of all who are born, but supposed it to be a special gift bestowed by the favoring heavens on that one distinguished infant. There was no other company, and we sat in a shady bower, under a table, as my better, or worse, knowledge leads me to believe, and were regaled with saccharine substances, and liquids until it was time to part. A bitter powder was administered to me next morning, and I was wretched. On the whole, a pretty accurate foreshadowing of my more mature experiences in such wise. Then came the time when inseparable from one's own birthday was a certain sense of merit, a consciousness of well-earned distinction, when I regarded my birthday as a graceful achievement of my own, a monument of my perseverance, independence, and good sense, redounding greatly to my honor. This was about the period when Olympia Squires became involved in the anniversary. Olympia was most beautiful, of course, and I loved her to that degree that I used to be obliged to get out of my little bed in the night, expressly to explain to solitude, Oh, Olympia Squires, visions of Olympia clothed entirely in sage green, from which I infer a defectively educated taste on the part of her respected parents, who were necessarily unacquainted with the South Kensington Museum, still arise before me. Truth is sacred and the visions are crowned by a shining white beaver bonnet, impossibly suggestive of a little feminine postboy. My memory presents a birthday when Olympia and I were taken by an unfeeling relative, some cruel uncle or the like, to a slow torture called an orrery. The terrible instrument was set up at the local theater, and I had expressed a profane wish in the morning that it was a play, for which a serious aunt had probed my conscience deep and my pocket deeper, by reclaiming a bestowed half-crown. It was a venerable and shabby orrery, at least one thousand stars and twenty-five comets behind the age. Nevertheless, it was awful, when the low-spirited gentleman with a wand said, Ladies and gentlemen, meaning particularly Olympia and me, the lights are about to be put out, but there is not the slightest cause for alarm. It was very alarming. Then the planets and the stars began. Sometimes they wouldn't come on, sometimes they wouldn't go off, sometimes they had holes in them, and mostly they didn't seem to be good likenesses. All this time the gentleman with the wand was going on in the dark, tapping away at the heavenly bodies between whiles, like a wearisome woodpecker, about a sphere revolving on its own axis eight hundred and ninety-seven thousand millions of times or miles, in two hundred and sixty-three thousand five hundred and twenty-four millions of something else's, until I thought if this was a birthday, it were better never to have been born. Olympia also became much depressed, and we both slumbered and woke cross, and still the gentleman was going on in the dark, whether up in the stars or down on the stage, it would have been hard to make out, if it had been worth trying, ciphering away about planes of orbits to such an infamous extent that Olympia, stung to madness, actually kicked me. 
a pretty birthday spectacle when the lights were turned up again and all the schools in the town including the national who had come in for nothing and served them right for they were always throwing stones were discovered with exhausted countenances screwing their knuckles into their eyes or clutching their heads of hair a pretty birthday speech when dr sleek of the city free bobbed up his powdered head in the stage box and said that before this assembly dispersed he really must beg to express his entire approval of a lecture as improving as informing as devoid of anything that could call a blush into the cheek of youth as any it had ever been his lot to hear delivered a pretty birthday altogether when astronomy couldn't leave poor small olympia squires and me alone but must put an end to our love but we never got over it. The threadbare orrery outwore our mutual tenderness. The man with the wand was too much for the boy with the bow. When shall I disconnect the combined smells of oranges, brown paper, and straw from those other birthdays at school? When the coming hamper cast its shadow before, and when a week of social harmony, shall I add, of admiring and affectionate popularity, led up to that institution? What noble sentiments were expressed to me in the days before the hamper? What vows of friendship were sworn to me? What exceedingly old knives were given me? What generous avowals of having been in the wrong emanated from else obstinate spirits once enrolled among my enemies? The birthday of the potted game and guava jelly is still made special to me by the noble conduct of Bully Globson. Letters from home had mysteriously inquired whether I should be much surprised and disappointed if among the treasures in the coming hamper I discovered potted game and guava jelly from the Western Indies. I had mentioned those hints in confidence to a few friends and had promised to give away, as I now see reason to believe, a handsome covey of partridges potted and about a hundred weight of guava jelly. It was now that Globson, bully no more, sought me out in the playground. He was a big fat boy with a big fat head and a big fat fist, and at the beginning of the half had raised such a bump on my forehead that I couldn't get my hat of state on to go to church. He said that after an interval of cool reflection, four months, he now felt this blow to have been an, an error of judgment, and that he wished to apologize for the same. Not only that, but holding down his big head between his two big hands in order that I might reach it conveniently, he requested me, as an act of justice which would appease his awakened conscience, to raise a retributive bump upon it, in the presence of witnesses. This handsome proposal I modestly declined, and he then embraced me, and we walked away conversing. We conversed respecting the West Indian Islands, and in pursuit of knowledge he asked me with much interest whether in the course of my reading I had met with any reliable description of the mode of manufacturing guava jelly, or whether I had ever happened to taste that conserve, which had been given to understand was of rare excellence, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and then was the waning months came an ever-augmenting sense of the dignity of twenty-one. Heaven knows I had nothing to come into, save the bare birthday, and yet I esteemed it as a great possession. I now and then paved the way to my state of dignity by beginning a proposition with the casual words, say that a man of twenty-one, or by the incidental assumption of a fact that could not sanely be disputed as for when a fellow comes to be a man of twenty-one. I gave a party on the occasion. She was there. It is unnecessary to name her. More particularly, she was older than I, and had pervaded every chink and crevice of my mind for three or four years. I had held volumes of imaginary conversations with her mother on the subject of our union, and I had written letters more in number than Horace Walpole's to that discreet woman soliciting her daughter's hand in marriage. I had never had the remotest intention of sending any of those letters, but to write them, and after a few days tear them up, had been a sublime occupation. Sometimes I had begun, Honored Madam, I think that a lady gifted with those powers of observation which I know you to possess, and endowed with those womanly sympathies with the young and ardent which it were more than heresy to doubt, can scarcely have failed to discover that I love your adorable daughter, deeply, devotedly. In less buoyant states of mind I had begun, Bear with me, dear. Madam, bear with a daring wretch who is about to make a surprising confession to you, wholly unanticipated by yourself. 
and which he beseeches you to commit to the flames as soon as you have become aware to what a towering height his mad ambition soars. At other times, periods of profound mental depression, when she had gone out to balls where I was not, the draft took the affecting form of a paper to be left on my table after my departure to the confines of the globe, as thus, for Mrs. Anna whenever, these lines, when the hand that traces them shall be far away, I could not bear the daily torture of hopelessly loving the dear one whom I will not name. Broiling on the coast of Africa, or congealing on the shores of Greenland, I am far, far better there than here. In this sentiment, my cooler judgment perceives that the family of the beloved object would have most completely concurred. If I ever emerge from obscurity, and my name is ever heralded by fame, it will be for her dear sake. If I ever amass gold, it will be to pour at her, at her feet. Should I, on the other hand, become the prey of ravens, I doubt if I ever quite made up my mind what was to be done in that affecting case. I tried, then it is better so, but not feeling convinced that it would be better so, I vacillated between leaving all else blank, which looked expressive and bleak, or winding up with farewell. This fictitious correspondence of mine is to blame for the foregoing digression. I was about to pursue the statement that on my twenty-first birthday I gave a party, and she was there. It was a beautiful party. There was not a single animate or inanimate object connected with it, except the company and myself, that I had ever seen before. Everything was hired, and the mercenaries and attendants were profound strangers to me. Behind the door, in the crummy part of the night, when wine glasses were to be found in unexpected spots, I spoke to her. Spoke out to her. What passed, I cannot as a man of honor reveal. She was all angelical, gentleness, but a word was mentioned. A short and dreadful word of three letters, beginning with a B, which, as I remarked at the moment, scorched my brain. She went away soon afterwards, and when the hollow throng, though to be sure it was no fault of theirs, dispersed, I issued forth with a dissipated scorner, and, as I mentioned expressly to him, sought oblivion. It was found, with a dreadful headache in it, but it didn't last, for in the shaming light of the next day's noon I raised my heavy head in bed, looking back to the birthdays behind me, and tracking the circle by which I had got round, after all, to the bitter powder and the wretchedness again. This reactionary powder, taken so largely by the human race, I am inclined to regard it as the universal medicine once sought for in laboratories, is capable of being made up in another form of birthday use. Anybody's long-lost brother will do ill to turn up on a birthday. If I had a long-lost brother, I should know beforehand that he would prove a tremendous fraternal failure if he appointed to rush into my arms on my birthday. The first magic lantern I ever saw was secretly and elaborately planned to be the great effect of a very juvenile birthday, but it wouldn't act, and its images were dim. My experience of adult birthday magic lanterns may possibly have been unfortunate, but has certainly been similar. I have an illustrative birthday in my eye, a birthday of my friend Flipfield, whose birthdays had long been remarkable social successes. There had been nothing set or formal about them. Flipfield, having been accustomed merely to say two or three days before, don't forget to come and dine, old boy, according to custom. I don't know what he said to the ladies he invited, but I may safely assume it not to have been old girl. Those were delightful gatherings and were enjoyed by all participators. In an evil hour, a long-lost brother of Flipfield's came to light in foreign parts. Where he had been hidden, or what he had been doing, I don't know, for Flipfield vaguely informed me that he had turned up on the banks of the Ganges, speaking of him as if he had been washed ashore. The long-lost was coming home, and Flipfield made an unfortunate calculation, based on the well-known regularity of the P and O steamers, that matters might be so contrived as that the long-lost should appear in the nick of time on his, Flipfield's, birthday. Delicacy commanded that I should repress the gloomy anticipations with which my soul became fraught when I heard of this plan. The fatal day arrived, and we assembled in force. Mrs. Flipfield, senior, formed an interesting feature in the group. 
with the blue-veined miniature of the late Mr. Flipfield round her neck, in an oval, resembling a tart from the pastry cooks, his hair powdered and the bright buttons on his coat, evidently very alike. She was accompanied by Miss Flipfield, the eldest of her numerous family, who held her pocket-handkerchief to her bosom in a majestic manner, and spoke to all of us, none of us had ever seen her before, in pious and condoning tones of all the quarrels that had taken place in the family, from her infancy, which must have been a long time ago, went down to that hour. A long loss did not appear. Dinner, half an hour later than usual, was announced, and still no long loss. We sat down to table. The knife and fork of the long loss made a vacuum in nature, and when the champagne came round for the first time, Flipfield gave him up for the day, and had them removed. It was then that the long loss gained the height of his popularity with the company. For my own part, I felt convinced that I loved him dearly. Flipfield's dinners are perfect, and he is the easiest and best of entertainers. Dinner went on brilliantly, and the more the long loss didn't come, the more comfortable we grew, and the more highly we thought of him. Flipfield's own man, who was a regard for me, was in the act of struggling with an ignorant stipendiary to wrest from him the wooden leg of a guinea fowl which he was pressing on my acceptance, and to substitute a slice of the breast when a ringing at the doorbell suspended the strife. I looked round me and perceived the sudden pallor which I knew my own visage revealed, reflected in the faces of the company. Flipfield hurriedly excused himself, went out, was absent for about a minute or two, then re-entered with the long lost. I begged to say distinctly that if the stranger had brought Mont Blanc with him, or had come attended by a retinue of eternal snows, he could not have chilled the circle to the marrow in a more efficient manner. Embodied failure sat enthroned upon the long-lost brow, and pervaded him to his long-lost boots. In vain, Mrs. Fliffield, Sr., opening her arms, exclaimed, My Tom! and pressed his nose against the counterfeit present meant of his other parent. In vain, Miss Flipfield, in the first transports of this reunion, showed him a dent upon her maidenly cheek, and asked him if he remembered when he did that with the bellows. We, the bystanders, were overcome, but overcome by the palpable, undisguisable, utter, and total breakdown of the long-lost. Nothing he could have done would have set him right with us but his instant return to the Ganges. In the very same moments it became established that the feeling was reciprocal, and the long-lost detested us. When a friend of the family, not myself, upon my honor, wishing to set things going again, asked him, while he partook of soup, asked him with an amiability of intention beyond all praise, but with a weakness of execution up open to defeat, what kind of river he considered the Ganges. The long-lost, scowling at the friend of the family over his spoon, as one of the abhorrent race, replied, why, a river of water, I suppose, and spooned his soup into himself with a malignancy of hand and eye that blighted the amiable questioner. Not an opinion could be elicited from the long-lost. In unison with the sentiments of any individual present, he contradicted Flipfield dead, before he had eaten his salmon. He had no idea, or affected to, to have no idea, that it was his brother's birthday, and on the communication of that interesting fact to him, merely wanted to make him out four years older than he was. He was an antipathetical being with the peculiar power and a gift of treading on everyone's tenderest place. They talk in America of a man's platform. I should describe the platform of the long-lost as a platform composed of other people's corns, on which he had stumped his way, with all his might and main, to his present position. It is needless to add that Flipfield's great birthday went by the board, and that he was a wreck when I pretended at parting to wish him many happy returns of it. There is another class of birthdays at which I have so frequently assisted, that I may assume such birthdays to be pretty well known to the human race. My friend Mayday's birthday is an example. The guests have no knowledge of one another except that on, that one day in the year, and are annually terrified for a week by the prospect of meeting one another again, there is a fiction among us that we have uncommon reasons for being particularly lively and spirited on the occasion, whereas deep despondency is no phrase for the expression of our feelings. But the wonderful feature of the case is that we are in tacit accordance to avoid the subject, to keep it as far off as possible 
as long as possible and to talk about anything else rather than the joyful event. I may even go so far as to assert that there is a dumb compact among us that we will pretend that it is not May Day's birthday. A mysterious and gloomy being who is said to have gone to school with May Day and who is so lank and lean that he seriously impugns the dietary of the establishment at which they were jointly educated always leads us, as I may say, to the block by laying his grisly hand on a decanter and begging us to fill our glasses. The devices and pretenses that I have seen put in practice to defer the fatal moment and to interpose between this man and his purpose are innumerable. I have known desperate guests, when they saw the grisly hand approaching the decanter, wildly to begin, without any antecedent whatsoever. That reminds me, and to plunge into long stories. When at last the hand and the decanter come together, a shudder, a palpable, perceptible shudder, goes round the table. We receive the reminder that it is May's, May Day's birthday, as if it were the anniversary of some profound disgrace he had undergone, and we sought to comfort him. And when we have drunk May Day's health, and wished him many happy returns, we are seized for some moments with a ghastly blitheness and unnatural levity, as if we were in the first flush reaction of having undergone a surgical operation. Birthdays of this species have a public as well as private phase. My boyhood home, Dullborough, presents a case in point. An immortal somebody was wanted in Dullborough, to dimple for a day the stagnant face of the waters. He was rather wanted by Dullborough generally, and much wanted by the principal hotel-keeper. The county history was looked upon for a locally immortal somebody, but the registered Dullborough worthies were all nobodies. In this state of things, it is hardly necessary to record that Dullborough did what every man does when he wants to write a book or deliver a lecture, and is provided with all the materials except the subject. It fell back upon Shakespeare. No sooner was it resolved to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday in Dullborough than the popularity of the immortal bard became surprising. You might have supposed the first edition of his works to have been published last week, an enthusiastic Dullborough, to have got half through them. I doubt, by the way, whether it ever done half that. But that is a private opinion. A young gentleman with a sonnet, the retention of which for two years had enfeebled his mind and undermined his knees, got the sonnet into the Dullborough warden, and gained flesh. Portraits of Shakespeare broke out in the bookshop windows, and our principal artist painted a large original portrait in oils for the decoration of the dining room. It was not in the least like it any of the other portraits, and was exceedingly admired, the head being much swollen. At the institution, the debating society discussed the new question, was there sufficient ground for supposing that the immortal Shakespeare ever stole deer? This was indignantly decided by an overwhelming majority in the negative. Indeed, there was but one vote on the poaching side, and that was the vote of the orator who had undertaken to advocate it, and who became quite an obnoxious character, particularly to the Dullborough roughs, who were about as well informed on the matter as most other people. Distinguished speakers were invited down, and barely nearly came, but not quite. Subscriptions were opened, and committees sat, and it would have been far from a popular measure, in the height of the excitement, to have told Dullborough that it wasn't Stratford-upon-Avon. Yet, after all these preparations, when the great festivity took place, and the portrait, elevated aloft, surveyed the company as if it were in danger of springing a mind of intellect and blowing itself up, it did undoubtedly happen, according to the inscrutable mysteries of things, that nobody could be induced not to say to touch upon Shakespeare, but to come within a mile of him, until the cracked speaker of Dullborough rose to propose the immortal memory, which he did with the perplexing and astonishing result that before he had repeated the great name half a dozen times, or had been upon his legs as many minutes, he was assailed with a general shout of, Question! End of chapter 20 Recorded by Rick Saffrey, Parkville, Maryland